uh, here in Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, um, particularly on verse 17. Let me go ahead and I'll just read the scriptures first. Uh, Paul writing here this opening uh, of the letter to the Romans, uh, the Christians in Rome. Uh, and I think really, again, like I said this morning, I don't know how much I really had to say this morning, and hopefully my thoughts aren't too scattered that it just makes a mess of things, but may the Lord give me utterance. First thing we got to remember is this is a letter to Christians, as is all the letters in the Scriptures, as is all the things in the Scriptures, are all written to the people of God, right? But as we see here, in Paul's opening to the letter, it says, um, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So this letter is to those who are um, called to be saints, the beloved of God. Okay. So on the outset, we see that the context of this letter is something that is written to, and his audience is... The people of God, the beloved of God. That's who he's talking to. So whenever he's giving all this stuff from Romans 1 to Romans what is it, 15, 14, 16, to the, to the last of the letter, it's all directed to and involving those audience members. Okay, The beloved of God. That's who this... Primarily is to those who are in Rome. I believe it also has some meaning for us today. We're the beloved of God as well. But particularly those who are in Rome. So he's writing this to them. He's longing to come to them. To see them. To impart unto them a, uh, uh, a spiritual gift. Not that he's going to convey a work inside of them that's going to cause them to be able to do a spiritual gift, but he is going to convey and impart unto them some spiritual gift that God has given him to convey the gospel, convey uh, comfort to them, right? So Paul's whole writing here is the fact that I want to come to you that are in Rome. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. God has called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and that just so happens to be who you are. You are the, uh, the, the people, the beloved of God in Rome, not in Jerusalem, not in Israel, but in Rome. You are the Gentiles. So I long to come to you and to impart to you some spiritual gift. But Paul says in verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Now he just said that he was a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. So he's ready to preach to anybody, to everyone that will listen, that will hear. He's ready to preach to them. But he says, but I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also, and again, we can't pull that away from its context. Those who are the beloved of God who are in Rome, that's who he's talking to. I'm wanting to come to Rome to preach to you, the audience that I'm writing to, the gospel. So the preaching of the gospel that is in context here 
is the preaching to those who are already the beloved of God. Okay? Those who are already believers. Those who have already been called to be saints. The church that is at Rome. Those people that have already been quickened of the Holy Ghost. That have already been uh, 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 given faith and given repentance. Where they have turned from their false beliefs and their false gods and their, and their idol worship. And have turned to Christ and have believed upon Christ. They are the saints of God. These are the ones that he is talking to. And these are the ones that he is desiring to come and preach the gospel to. He didn't say, I come to preach on your street corners to all those who don't know and is not the beloved of God, that is not called to be saints, that are not the church. He didn't say that. He said, I, come, I desire to come to preach to those of the beloved, those who belong to him, I come to preach the gospel to but notice if you would, he goes right from that into verse 16 and 17, which in my opinion, verse 16 and 17, particularly 16, uh, is a very misunderstood verse, a verse that is often used uh, in the defense of gospel regeneration, uh, gospel salvation, that we are saved by preaching, by men's preaching, okay? But he says, I'm, I'm desiring to come to you and preach the gospel to you, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's not the power, the gospel is not the power of God unto salvation to the unbeliever, to the one who is not already a believer. And this is where people get this mixed up, I believe is they preach that this that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that if you preach the gospel, the unbeliever will become the believer, and then they will be saved. They will be justified by their believing. That's what we hear on almost every church corner that's out here today. But brethren, this is saying that number one, this gospel he desires to preach, he's going to people who have already become believers. <laughs> So this gospel is for the one who has been made, brought to, granted, given belief already. So that means they've already been quickened. That means they have already been converted. That means they have already been preached the gospel before and have began to believe the gospel and are living in the belief of that gospel. And he is desiring to come and to preach that same gospel to them. And it says here, he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now remember, the gospel of Christ is the good news, right? That's what gospel means, good news. It's the good news of Christ. It's not the good news of good news. Which the people that believe in gospel salvation, gospel regeneration... They are basically saying that. That the gospel is the gospel of good news about good news. The good news is that if you believe the good news, then you can be saved. So the good news is the good news that you can hear and believe. See, we're not, nobody, nobody, listen, I, I pray that you hear this and understand this and take it to its not only logical conclusion, but, but it's biblical conclusion. Men 
women, children, the elect of God are not ever saved by preaching the gospel, hearing the gospel, reading the gospel. They are not saved in a legal sense before God, justified. They are not set uh, in, in favor in righteousness before God by believing this gospel. This gospel is the good news about their salvation. So whenever we talk about the gospel of Christ, it's the good news of Christ, not the good news that you can have Christ, or not the good news, <clears throat> not the good news that you believe on Christ and then you get something. No, it is the good news of Christ. And what does that mean? The good news of Christ or the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of all the work that Christ has done. The person and the work. Now we talked just a few weeks ago about the testimony. Remember? The testimony of Christ. Paul talked about that in Corinthians. About that the Holy Spirit has established in the heart of every child of grace the testimony of Christ, His person and His work. Well, Paul is saying the same thing here. He is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the testimony of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. What is the good news of Christ? That there is the power of God unto salvation. It's not the power of the good news unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? The testimony of what He has done, who He is. He is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. What is the power of God? That inward work of changing the heart, that inward work of giving faith and uh, repentance where the natural man cannot have faith and cannot have repentance apart from that quickening of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of God. We see it all throughout the Scripture. <clears throat> Stay with me right there in Romans, but look back again at uh, 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 Isaiah 53 and verse 1. <clears throat> You've heard me... You've heard me say this many times. Isaiah 53 and verse 1, it says, Who hath believed our report? And then he follows that up with a second question. However, that second question actually reveals the answer to the first question. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm or the power of the Lord revealed? The one who believes the report about Jesus Christ is the one unto whom the power of the Lord has exerted Himself upon. The one who believes the report is the one unto whom the arm of the Lord has revealed who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's who believes. The Bible says that my people shall be made willing in the day of His power. Right? 
So the believing of the report, the believing of the testimony, the believing of the gospel, the faith of the elect that they have on the Lord Jesus Christ is not something that is inherent in them. That is not something that comes because they hear a magical message and then that magical message does some magical work in their heart and now they have all of a sudden had this enchantment as C.H. Spurgeon calls it, this enchantment of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, I disagree with C.H. Spurgeon and what he said about that. It is not an enchantment. It is not magic. It is not the gospel itself that does the work. It is the object of the gospel that does the work. Christ is the one who did the obedience for us. Christ is the one who did the dying for us for us. And in that, the obedience and the dying, therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Christ's righteousness, the only righteousness that God ever, ever accepts, the only righteousness that ever exists. There is no other righteousness. There is no righteousness in you or me or anybody else out there in Facebook land or YouTube land or sermon audio land, there is no more uh, righteousness to be found. There is only righteousness found in Christ Jesus. He is righteousness and He has procured righteousness on our behalf. He is righteousness. And so the righteousness of God that is revealed is not Christ in you, working in you, working out a righteousness in you, because the Bible says that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So you can't say that Christ is working righteousness in me so that others may see the righteousness of Christ because God says our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now that word righteousnesses is not our unrighteousnesses. A lot of people think that when God said there is none righteous, no not one, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, they take that to mean that, well that's talking about all of the good works that we try to do for God or in God's place or something like that. That's not counting the work that God is doing through us. No, brethren, listen, it says all of our righteousness. That means all of the good deeds, all the good works, all the wonderful things that we do, all of all the things that we put forth before God or before man to be considered as righteousness, God says it's filthy rags. And Paul says the reason that it's filthy rags is because that in me dwelleth no good thing and that all my righteousness are filthy rags. That everything that I do is tainted with sin. Therefore, everything that I do is not of faith. It is of works. It is me trying to do something. And everything that I try to do in the flesh is nothing but unrighteousness. So that's what Paul uh, defines for us. That is what Paul gives for us as righteousness is not our inherent righteousness because of God working in us. Now, does God work in us? Absolutely, He does. I am not denying that. Is God in there to infuse righteousness in you so that you in of yourself become righteousness? No, I am not saying that. 
I am not saying that. God works in you and the righteousness that God works in you is not for you to be more holy in obedience to the law, but it is God working in you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed the law. That's what the righteousness that God is working in you. He's, righteous, he's working the righteousness of faith in you, which is looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It is looking to Christ as our obedience. Looking to Christ as our substitute. Not as looking to Christ, who is our helper to accomplish righteousness. To be righteousness. No, it is to... Uh, to uh, 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 completely and totally uh, debase ourselves of any type and any uh, uh, ability for righteousness and to trust solely on the one who is our righteousness. That's what faith does. That's what faith is given to us on. Not faith given to us so that we might muster it up ourselves so that we can grasp hold of Christ and that we might follow after Him and, and follow after His example and, and do like He did. Now that's not what that is for. Faith is given to us to receive the testimony of Christ. Faith is given to us so that we might receive, believe, and live upon the faith of Christ. Not our faith and the upworking and the outworking of our faith. It is to live upon Christ, His faithfulness, His, uh, uh, um, His uh, work that He has done. So when Paul comes here and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God. What? The gospel of Christ, the testimony of Christ, is the testimony of the power of God unto salvation. Christ has come and actually saved. He's not saving people. He has saved His people. Christ is not in time, onesies and twosies, coming along to anyone who will believe and saving them, saying, okay, if you believe on me, okay, I'm going to save you now, I'm going to save you now. Okay, you're justified, you're justified, you're justified now. No, it was a corporate work that God did on our behalf. Just as it was a corporate work that we all died in Adam, right? As in one man all became sinners, so also in one man became all became justified. It was a corporate work, a corporate event. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place, is the subject matter. The cross of Jesus Christ and His work and the finished work, and that entails His obedience prior to the cross, which, by the way, the obedience before prior to the cross is what qualifies Him to be the one to die on the cross. So the obedience can never be, can't never be divorced from uh, the the work on the cross. I hear some people. We use the term passive and uh, 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 active and passive obedience. His active obedience and his passive obedience and everything. Y'all can argue all that out all you want. All I know is this: is that without the obedience, there can't be the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is only there because of the obedience. The obedience is always connected with the sacrifice. The spotless lamb is the only one that can be slain. So there has to be a spotlessness first before there can be a sacrificial lamb that is of any importance. Okay? So 
the obedience, and the death are all tied together, as is the resurrection. Obedience, death, and re resurrection. They are all tied together. Okay? That is the gospel of Christ. That is the good news. The good news is that Christ has accomplished salvation for His people by the power of God. That people are quickened by the power of God. That faith and repentance is given by the power of God. That perseverance is by the power of God. Everything is about the power of God, not the responsibility or the response of man. It's all about God. Man doesn't have any responsibility because, listen, God is at the heart of everything, whether it's the legal aspect of salvation or the experiential aspect of your outflow of salvation, what comes the fruit of salvation, your experience, your knowledge, your understanding, your quickening, your repentance, your faith, your perseverance is all by the power of God, not inherent in you. So therefore, even our experience of that legal salvation is all by the sovereign hand of God who works it, who does it, who completes it in us. And we can't give, take any credit for it. It's not our responsibility, it's His responsibility. It's Christ's responsibility to give me faith. It's Christ's responsibility to give me the measure of faith. It's Christ's responsibility to quicken my heart. It's Christ's responsibility to cause me to repent and turn from thinking that I have a righteousness of my own that can come out of me and looking to Christ alone. It's Christ's responsibility to keep me and to hold me and to pers uh, preserve me. That's His responsibility. So this whole issue of balancing God's sovereignty and responsibility is ridiculous. Because man cannot respond to God, much less have a responsibility to do anything Godward, because the natural man can do nothing but sin. The only thing that can be of any value is what Christ did in our place. And if he if it's about us doing it in us and God accepting that, then Christ died in vain. Christ died for no reason. And then that, my friend, is no good news. The good news of Christ is no good news if Christ isn't the one who actually accomplished salvation. If He just made salvation a, a plan, made it possible, then that's not good news because there's a possibility that the plan might fail. There's a possibility that I might not achieve to that, play, that, that uh, salvation. It's not good news. I've used the illustration before. Uh, think back, I can't remember. I think it was Brother Royce that gave this illustration one time in a sermon I heard him preach. Maybe it's somebody else. If it was, I'm sorry, whoever it was. But he gave the illustration that getting the mail, most people do, we don't get them anymore. We used to get them all the time when we were younger. But you used to get in the mail all the time these uh, publisher clearinghouse things. You can win, however, you know, all this stuff about. Millions and millions of dollars, right? Uh, and everything. And uh, man, that would be exciting. Boy, if we could just get all of that and everything. Now, if I get a letter in the mail that says, you could win $10 million if you will, and then fill in the blank, well, that's really not good news. 
That's, that's news of a possibility. But what are the odds? If you read down in those little uh, uh, words down at the bottom, the fine print, you'll see usually the odds are like one in like 15 billion that you're going to win this thing. Okay? Uh, the odds are if you buy this and buy this or if you continue in this subscription or whatever, all this stuff that, that you do, if you keep sending this in, then you'll get to the next level, then to the next level, then to the next level, then you get to the next level, and then the big drawing comes, and then you could win the 10. It's, if you do this, you can win 10. That's, see, that's not good news to me. Now, if I get something in the mail that says, you have won $10 million, and the full sum has been deposited into your bank, that's good news. <laughs> that's good news because guess what? I don't have to do anything. It's been given to me. It's deposited into my account. It's mine forever. I don't have to do anything for it. Now, I know that's kind of a silly illustration, but brethren, that's what we're talking about. The good news is news of something that has been accomplished, not that might be accomplished if conditions and terms are met. Terms and conditions. Do, don't you hate to see that whenever you're reading through some legal work and there's terms and conditions apply? Sign up for this nice new credit card. Terms and conditions apply. Well, what's the terms and conditions? After so many days, you're going to be charged 50% interest on your credit card. What is the condition? If you don't pay within 23 days, then you're going to have this much attitude. Terms and conditions. Oh, you mean i got a car that I can buy anything on? Yep, terms and conditions apply, though. Well, see, that's not good news. It's good news with the caveat. You can have salvation, but you've got to do all this. Well, guess what? To somebody who has actually been spiritually awakened, spiritually alive, that is given knowledge and understanding of the things of God, when they look at the Scripture, they see the Scripture teaches, I can't do that. What do you mean, I can't do that? So you say, I can have that if I do this, but I can't do this. The terms and conditions now have condemned me. There is no good news when there is conditions. There is lots of good news when the, when the record says it's done. It's finished. It's over. And guess what? It's yours. Laid to your account. Already in your bank. Already on your record. And it can't be taken away. It can't be added to and it can't be diminished. Boy, I wish I had a bank account like that, right? Just a never-ending bank account that never does diminish. But that's how it is with God's righteousness. It can never diminish. But it can't be ever added to either. It is what it is. It's a perfect salvation. It's a perfect righteousness. And Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Not the gospel of our preaching, the gospel of our good news, the gospel of what you should do, but the gospel of Christ. The good news of what Christ has done, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, and only to them and them only. The gospel. That's why Paul wanted to go preach the gospel to already saved people. Because he knows that that to them is the power of God. 
That is the comfort that gives them comfort. That is what causes them to rejoice. That is what causes them to uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Is the hearing of their finished salvation. Not the plight of the Christian to maintain a salvation or to grasp at a salvation, but it is the work of a finished salvation. Paul has no shame to come and say it's not about your gods, it's not about this, not about that. Everybody knows that. Nobody has, most Christians have no problem coming out and saying Buddha's not the one, Muhammad's not the one, Hyder Krishna's not the one, you know, all these, the Pope's not the one. We don't have a problem with that. But how many people can come out and say, that Jesus and that God that you are saying that you are worshiping that says you can have salvation if you do this, how many people are saying that's not the one either? That Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible that has made salvation possible. That's a false Jesus. That's an idol. Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel of Christ. And the gospel of Christ is the gospel that it is the power of God unto salvation, not the power of man and his responsibility. Not the power of man and his preaching. Not the power of man and his receiving, believing, repenting, good works. It's not that that is the power of God. The power of God is the power of Christ. That's the power that is for salvation. And it's an accomplished work. It's a finished work. It's done. It is over. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see the purpose of the gospel is not to get people saved. The purpose of the gospel is to not get people quickened. There is a 2 Timothy in this Bible. I'm sure of it. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verse 9. Who have saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Brethren, it was finished before the foundation of the world. Salvation was finished before the foundation of the world. You keep wanting to say people are getting saved now. Well, if you, I don't have a problem necessarily with people saying that. I kind of cringe just a little bit because I wonder what they mean by it. But if you mean saved from error, saved from wrong knowledge, then I, I will agree. The Lord is saving people from the darkness of their own understanding. Now, in time, He has given them knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Gospel. He's given them understanding of their finished salvation in Christ Jesus. So He is saving them from error. He is saving them from their pursuit of unrighteousness and giving them a pursuit of trusting on Christ and His righteousness alone. In that regard, He is saving people. But whenever it's talking about they are unsaved as far as before God, their salvation, their justification, their sanctification before God is something that is a fluid thing and that is in time waiting to be happening. No, that is not happening. That was before the foundation of the world because it says right here, He has saved us past tense, called us past tense with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. That's how we were saved and called. According to His own purpose and grace. But what was the substance? His own purpose and grace of salvation was always, 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 even though it was in eternity, even though it was done before the foundations of the world was laid, it was a done thing, it still was based upon the substance of Christ and Him crucified. Yes, Christ had to come. Christ had to die. We believe that just because we believe in eternal justification, because we believe in eternal salvation, because we believe in everything predestined and finished from the works uh, before the works of, of creation, just because we believe that does not negate the fact that Christ had to come in time as God had purposed that in the in the um, in the um, in his day, in his time, his hour had come. There was a time allotted for Christ to come, and we see that. Verse 10, but is now made manifest. What is now made manifest? The saving, the calling before the foundation of the world that was in the purpose and grace of God that was given to us is now made manifest. The fact that God saved us and called us past tense, it's a done thing. All of God's decretal things were complete. He's not decreeing things now. He decreed them all from the from the beginning. That's why the Bible says, "Known unto God are all His works, the end from the beginning." That He has decreed all things, declared all things. But now they're being made manifest. There is a revealing of these things. There is a pulling back of the curtain to show us what was already in eternity. To pull back and show us what's already been given us. What's already been accomplished for us. And he says right here, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Not to life through the Gospel. The Gospel does not bring people to life. The Gospel does not bring uh, people into salvation. It manifests. It reveals. It opens up the curtain so that you might see what all has been done behind the veil. Remember that veil used to be closed and nobody could see what was going on behind the veil. But what was going on behind the veil? What went on behind that big giant curtain that separated that inner uh, that inner court or that uh, the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle? What went on behind there? Well, that's where the high priest went in with the with the blood. After he had purified himself, he went in with the blood and he sprinkled that blood on the seat of mercy. He offered that to God, and God received that sacrifice. Listen, that was behind the veil. It was unseen. People didn't see what was going on back there. The priest is the only one who knew what was going on back there. But that veil has been rent in two. We now can see and we can know and we can experience what was going on behind the veil all along. And the Bible says in Hebrews that Christ entered into that tabernacle not made with hands, but that heavenly tabernacle and offered up that sacrifice 
And God accepted that sacrifice. And the Bible said that He was as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that that tabernacle of this earth was patterned after the one that was in the heavenlies. My only thought can go to that was what God had already purposed before the foundation of the world. And even though Christ had not yet in time come and died on that cross, He stood as that Lamb slain with the blood and the altar there before God, before the foundation of the world. God saw and purposed all of that, and it was so, even though it had not yet been. That's why it says here, He has saved us and called us before the foundation of the world and the purpose and grace of God, but is now made manifest, and the gospel is what brings this to light to everybody. This is what manifests that to us. This is what Paul's saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And here it is in verse 17. For therein, therein what? The gospel. The righteousness of God, therein is the righteousness of God revealed the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It doesn't impart the righteousness of God. It doesn't impute the righteousness of God. The gospel doesn't impute anything to you. God imputes righteousness to you by the power of God. By the decree of God. See, imputation is, is a declaration imputation is not impartation. They are two different words, brethren, that people often mix up. We are imputed righteousness. We are not actual righteous. We are imputed with righteousness. That means that God has declared us righteous, but He hasn't made us righteous. Christ is the righteousness. It's His righteousness that God accepts, that stands before God. All these little bitty glimpses of obedience and righteousness that we might show in this flesh, they're filthy rags, and on the day of judgment, they're not going to even come up. They say, well, wait a minute, preacher, the Bible says that we all should stand before the judgment seat of God, and to each man, they're going to give an account for all the things that they've done in this flesh, and they're going to give an account, and there's going to be things that's going to be burnt up, there's going to be wood, hay, stubble, and all that kind of stuff. Brethren, listen, when we stand before the Lord, we all are all going to give an account. The reprobate is going to give an account for all the works that they have done because the only works that they have done on their behalf are the ones that they did, which is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. And it will be burnt up. It will be shown as nothing. It will not save them. It will not justify them. They will be cast into outer darkness. But the child of grace, when they stand, there is no works on their account that is in their ledger. Their ledger, if it has works of them, works of Christ, their ledger is empty on their works. There is no works of the elect that is ever logged down in God's book. It's all the works of Christ. It's Christ and what He did on their behalf. Every law Christ kept, that's what's in my account. That's what's in my account. So He did it all. So what account do I give when I'm before the Lord? There's my account right there. Christ. The one who ever lives to intercede for me. The fact that He is there and what He has done on my behalf is the account of every work that I have done. Whatever Christ accomplished, there's my works right there. 
We don't boast in anything that we've done. We don't come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do this in Your name? In Your name we cast out devils. In Your name we healed people. In Your name we fed the poor and we fed the widows and we fed uh, and took care of the orphans and we sent money to the Ukraine we sent money to Israel and we sent money to uh, every other you know, third world country and we cleaned up our neighborhood and we did the highway pickup and you know, we sold Bibles out on the streets for everybody. No. When we stand before the Lord, it's what He has done. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the righteousness of man, the righteousness of God. And brethren, the righteousness of God that we have is not our faith. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, and I take that to mean from Christ, who is not only the object of our faith, but is faith Himself. He is the faithful one. He is the one who, who had the fidelity to God, not us. It was His faith that justified, not ours. He is not only the object that we trust in, but He is faith encapsulated. See, every bit of faith that we have, it wavers. It's in part. But Christ, who has the Spirit without measure, also had faith without measure. He did never waver ever once in faith. His faith was perfect, and perfect always. His, his faith didn't come in measures. It didn't come a little bit here and a little bit there. It was great today and not so much another day. His faith was a perfect faith. Nobody on earth of all God's elect can ever say that our faith is perfect. Our faith is given in measure. It's partial. And so therefore, our faith cannot be said to be righteous. The only thing that's righteous is that which is perfect. And only Christ is perfect. Therefore, He is the object of our faith, but He is faith encapsulated. He is faith personified. He is faith. And that righteousness is revealed from faith, His faith, His faithfulness. And our faith is what receives what His faithfulness did. From faith to faith. Now some say it's from our faith that is a gradually growing faith that becomes more and more and more and more. So the righteousness of God is more and more revealed to us the more and more our faith grows. But brethren, we are given faith to receive what faith did on our behalf. It is revealed from faith to faith. And he says right there, the just shall live by faith. You know Paul is quoting Habakkuk there? Look at it. Uh, it's Habakkuk chapter uh, uh, 2. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk. If you hit Nahum, keep going. You hit Zephaniah, back up. Habakkuk, look if you would, chapter 2 and verse 4. 
Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, and to the contrast of that, but the just shall live by his faith. Now that's kind of interesting because Paul said the just shall live by faith. But in here, in Habakkuk, he says the just shall live by his faith. Now, who is this talking about? Who is Habakkuk talking about here in the second chapter? Well, if you read through this, this is a vision that God gives to Habakkuk, and I believe it's a vision that he has given that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says the just shall live by his faith. I kind of did a little digging on some of this because I'm not a smart person. And so I did a little digging and I looked at this and how it was looked and translated in some of the earlier Bibles and in some of the earlier uh, works. And it just so happens that in the Septuagint, which Jesus and the apostles often referred to in the New Testament, in the Septuagint, which is the Septuagint is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that was translated into Greek. And that was before Jesus' time, right? And often, when quoting the Old Testament, the apostles and even Jesus himself quoted from the Septuagint. The Septuagint, in this passage, says, The just shall live by my faith. Not just his faith, but my faith. Well, I got to thinking about that. There's four, there's four times in the scriptures that this phrase is used, the just shall live by faith. One is what we just read in Romans, where Paul is saying that the gospel is revealed from faith to faith, and the just shall live by faith. Okay? Now, some think that means the just shall live by faith, and there's going to be an outward works of righteousness because they're walking in faith. Whenever you walk in faith, you're walking in, in, in walking in righteousness. You're going to be obedient. You're going to do all the law. You're going to do all these things and become a righteous person outwardly. But it says here, the just shall live by faith. Now in Habakkuk, where he was actually quoting, where is the first place this is ever mentioned, it says the just shall live by his faith. And the Septuagint translated that as the just shall live by my faith. Now, whenever we look at the other places in Scripture where this is found, which if you look back at Hebrews chapter 10, you will find that Habakkuk was talking and his, the vision that God was giving him was the vision of Jesus. Look with me if you would at Hebrews chapter 10. Put your finger in that because I want you to see something with me. And I, if I'm wrong on this, I'll be glad to listen. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision... Now listen to what he says here. For the vision 
is yet for an appointed time, but at the end of it shall speak and not lie. Though it, what? This vision. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So, God is about to give Habakkuk a vision, and this vision, he says, is going to come at the appointed time. This vision is going to come and is not going to lie. And though it tarry, he says to wait for it. And then he says, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Whose faith? The believer's faith? Or the one who is not going to tarry? The one who is going to come at the appointed time? Pastor, you're kind of stretching that a little bit. We'll look at Hebrews 10. Look at verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. This is a direct quotation of Habakkuk. Paul in Hebrews is once again referring back to Habakkuk 2. The promise of the vision in Habakkuk, but now made clear the vision of He, for He that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. See, he quotes it again. So he's tying the just shall live by faith to that quotation back in Hebrews. But that quotation in Hebrews is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ coming. You see that in verse 37? I don't think I'm drawing that out to an illogical conclusion. The reference of Habakkuk, although veiled, although in type, foreshadow, illusion, not clearly displayed, is defined by Paul in Hebrews as being Christ. That's who Habakkuk saw. That's who Habakkuk was telling, told about and that his faith, the one who will come, his faith is who the just shall live by. Now the just shall live by faith. And if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul or believe... Uh, uh, to the saving of the souls, not that we believe it so that we would be saved, but the, we, are, uh, we believe to the saving or how we are saved. We, are belie- we believe about how we are saved uh, and the saving of the soul takes place. Or it could actually be we believe to the full completion of our salvation which is in Christ Jesus at the end whenever our soul is delivered from this body of death. However it is, it's not us, it's not our faith that we live by. We live by His. How do I live day by day? I live knowing that Christ is my obedience. I live knowing that I am justified because of what He did, not because of what something that i got to maintain. 
Now the fourth place that this is found is found in Galatians. Chapter 3. So Paul quotes this three times. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. I'm going to back up uh, to verse 10. For as many as are that that for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So see, your effort to keep the law is, is, is asinine. Because if you can't keep it fully, then you've broken it. And once you've broken it, there is no restoring to that. You've broken it, it's broken. You're done. So unless somebody has substituted on your behalf and has kept it, and that keeping of that is laid to your account, then there is no hope for you. There is no hope for you. But if somebody has kept that for you, then live on that. Live on the fact that He has kept that for you and let that be your hope, not my hope in that I hope that I obey today. I hope that I keep this righteousness. I hope that I show forth the evidence of Christ today. I hope I show Christ in me to others. Because you're never going to show it because perfection is what is seen in Christ and perfection is never seen in you. Therefore, we live in faith of what He has done. We live by His faith. I live my life every day in faith that His faith has accomplished everything that God requires and has made me pleasing in His sight and is never going to count me out because I can't keep it. From faith to faith. We live from faith, His faith, to our faith. What is connected between those two? The finished work of Jesus Christ. We live on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But, no, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. The just shall live by faith. We don't live by works. We don't live by our, our keeping, upkeeping of righteousness. We don't live by Christ working in us a righteousness out. We, it's an objective thing. What Christ did outside of us that we live on. Not what Christ is doing inside of us. Is Christ doing stuff inside of us? Absolutely He is, but that's not what we live on. We live on what He did outside of us for us. That's what living by faith is all about. That's how the just lives. We live by His faith. It isn't a life that we live in the faith that God counts as righteousness. Our belief is never considered righteousness. So anyway, that's all I have to say about it and think about it. And I hope it's not so jumbled. But those four places that I saw where that phrase was used, the just shall live by faith, is not ever talking about we live by our own faith and that we live upon what Christ is doing in us. A righteousness that is being worked out of us. It is us living upon a finished and complete and perfect work on our behalf <coughs> for us. 
And that is the gospel that I'm not ashamed of. I'm ashamed of any gospel that says that I must or you must. I'm ashamed of that gospel because if I give you conditions, you're not going to ever meet them. If I have conditions, I know I'll never meet them. And that will just bring shame to you. It will bring shame to me. But Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel that said Jesus has done it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left His crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. He's not ashamed. And thankfully, Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's not because we follow in His footsteps, but He's not ashamed to call us brethren because He's imputed His righteousness to us. We are His seed. We are His children. We are the recipients of His promise. Alright, anybody got anything you'd like to add to that? Comment on? Corrections? Other thoughts about that? Lord, we once again thank you for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've given that to us by faith uh, for us to see and know that has been revealed to us that the gospel is preached to us by the Holy Spirit in our heart. But even though man may preach it outwardly until the Holy Spirit reveals and teaches us inwardly, we never know the good of what we have. We know that you give us the Spirit because <clears throat> in the purpose of uh, for us to know what has been freely given us. Again, we see that as what is freely given us, Father. And that's why you give us your Spirit. That is why you quicken us so that we might know. Not to know so that we might receive or to get. We know it all is by the power of uh, that you and you alone have. Uh, so we're grateful for the full work of salvation from beginning to end. And Lord, we just want to give you praise. We don't want to rely on the arm of flesh. We do not want to exalt in man and his ability uh, or what we think is an ability. But Father, we want to rejoice that even though in our weakness, in our inability, Christ is made strong is shown strong, is presented as strong, exalted as strong, and by His mighty arm we are saved. Thank You, Father, for showing us that, for giving us that, comforting us with that today. I pray it has been a comfort to Your people, wherever they may be, whether it's here in this congregation now, or whether it be those who might be listening uh, by internet or wherever they may be. Father, we just pray that you just might be glorified in all things that we do, all things that we preach, and all things that we hold to. And it's only by your grace can we ever hold to them. We ask that you keep us faithful in those things. Be with these brethren as they leave today, that you might keep them safe. Lord, and be with them this week, that you might minister to them as the days go by, as we wait for our coming Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to abolish all this life and all that we know about it, put off this body of death and so that we might be clothed uh, in a body like his and that we might rejoice in the presence of our king and so in his name that we pray